0: Let's open with a word of prayer. Oh Lord, our God, how awesome you are. We think on your power and might over the universe. Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly insignificant before your heavens. How much smaller we must be before you. We are undes- undeserving of your kindness and generosity and your love. Your love is greater than all the heavens, Lord, and we are so undeserving. We are overcome by the kindness of your love. We know that even the greatest things that we can imagine about you are just figments of what you really are. Lord, we are so lost without you. Our sin and failure weigh us down. We fail to look to you. Lord, we come to you this morning and we ask that you be with us. Remind us so that we do not fall short. Let us not follow after our own hearts, but to you and you only to open our hearts. God, give us wisdom to heed the words of your prophet Isaiah to understand them. Give us discernment, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife has been listening a lot to Levi Lusco lately. Levi is a pastor of a church in Montana. Many of you know his name, and I listen to him some on Air One every once in a while. Levi did a five-sermon series on a World War II aircraft and my wife was commenting about this, and I was getting the blow-by-blow, and what was funny was I actually knew the story ahead of time. Levi did his sermons on the British Spitfire. There's a Netflix special on the Spitfire, and it's definitely worth watching. They're going to pull it at the end of the month. So if you're going going to watch it, you should go do that. I'm going to warn you, it's long. It's an hour and a half long. It's not a one-hour special. And it wasn't done for BBC. It was done by some independent, independent group. The amazing thing was in the last, they'd been working on this special probably for four or five years, because they interviewed about eight of the pilots that had flown this aircraft during the Battle of Britain in 1940. Today, of the eight pilots that they interviewed, only one of them is still alive. So it's, it's really an incredible special. Two of the people that they interviewed were the delivery pilots, the women that would fly the, the aircraft from the factories out to the squadrons. And initially, they, there's a great story about this, the, the British would just put fuel in the airplane, and they would check the airplane out, and then they would turn it over to the women, and the women would fly these completely unarmed aircraft out to the the active squadrons and this is during the Battle of Britain so um, you can imagine that there were there were actually a couple of times where they sent these women out in completely unarmed aircraft and they blundered right into the battle itself and um, the RAF they're a little slow on the uptake sometimes But they figured this out, and um, they actually taught the women how to use the guns, and they would actually load the aircraft up. And there were a few situations where the women ended up in battle delivering the aircraft. But they delivered. They had this one woman. um, She was 100 when she died. Um, Her name was uh, Mary Ellis. In 1944, she had delivered an aircraft And before she climbed out of it, she pulled out her pen, and on the canopy rail, she signed her name. This aircraft still exists. It was not scrapped at the end of World War II. The owner of this aircraft, there are about 100 Spitfires still flying right now. The owner of this aircraft flew into the airfield, and she had come out that day just to visit him, and they had arranged this meeting. And she came out, and he gave her a Sharpie, and she signed her name again. She's 100 now. And she signed her name again over right next to her signature from 1944. She does this in the, in the special. It, this is an incredible, incredible special about this, this aircraft. In the summer of 1940, the British only had 1,000 103 fighter pilots. The Germans had about 1,500 at that time to fight the Battle of Britain. And it was the Germans' intention to achieve air superiority over England so that the Germans could then load up the German army into boats, cross the English Channel, and take over the United Kingdom. But they had to achieve air superiority first. There could not be any aircraft to oppose the boats coming across. What the Germans had not figured out was that the British could replace about 300 aircraft a week. They could only replace about 200 pilots a week. And so this turns into a slugfest of attrition to try and see who's going to run out of pilots and aircraft first. The one thing that the British had going for them, by the way, the entire Battle of Britain took place between 10 July and 31 October of 1940. That's 16 weeks. The entire thing happened in 16 weeks. The amazing thing is when they're interviewing these people who are, all of them are in their late 90s or early 100s in age, and they're, they're still sharp. They can remember this stuff. And they're talking about how they had no idea what the bigger picture was they didn't understand they didn't know they were just these 20 21 22 year old kids that were being thrown into this and they had no idea that they were going to end up changing the rest changing history for the whole world During most of the Battle of Britain, there were only about 300 to 400 Spitfire aircraft available. The Spitfire was the only fighter that could fight on equal footing with the German Messerschmitt 109, the frontline German fighter. The British also had another fighter aircraft called the Hawker Hurricane, which was not as fast and not as agile as the Spitfire or the Messerschmitt. But the British wisely meted out just enough aircraft to blunt the the flow of the bombers and the protective fighters from the German Air Force. One particular engagement in early October of 1940, there were over 1,000 aircraft in the air at one time over the east side of London during this battle. The real life story is just amazing and compelling on so many levels. I highly recommend the Netflix special. Um, Rotten Tomatoes gave it 94%. And I've listened to some of Levi's sermons on the Spitfire. Of the 2,000 British pilots who fought in the battle, today only one of them is still alive. He was 19 years old at the time. And these were the ones, by the way, that were standing in the gap between freedom and evil. And the subtitle on the Netflix special says, The Plane That Saved the World. I look at these old people, and they're 30, 40 years older than I am. Courage. They had courage. It comes at a high cost sometimes. We're looking at Isaiah 22 today, the oracle concerning Jerusalem. Isaiah had courage, and it came at a high cost. Isaiah's or- oracle of Jerusalem is tragic and saddening for Isaiah. It tears his heart out. He actually talks about this. This particular passage is a set piece. It's composed of three sets of three. You've seen this before. It's just the way that the the Jews put things together. The first set are verses 1 through the first half of verse 8. 1 through 8. And... Then the second half of 8 through 14 is the second set, and the third set is 15 through 25. In the first set, Isaiah tells of how distraught he is over this particular vision, and Isaiah can see the coming destruction of Jerusalem. The second set, Isaiah recounts how the weapons to defend the city are of no use. Judah has neglected the defenses of Jerusalem, and the city is breached. The people are celebrating ahead of this with a fatalism that neglects God's commands. And finally, the third set, verses 15 through 25, Use the examples of Shebna the steward who is unfaithful and Hilkiah the righteous and how Shebna will fail God and the people of God and how Hilkiah will be judged righteous even though he too also fails. So let's open to chapter 22 in Isaiah. Isaiah. In verses 1 and 2. An oracle concerning Jerusalem. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. Your slain or not slain with the sword or dead in battle. Here in the beginning of section one, Isaiah refers to Jerusalem as the valley of vision. Yet all of us know that Jerusalem is on a mount, built on a mountaintop. He's referring to Jerusalem as the valley of vision. And it's meant to be ironic in this opening statement. It was a common practice for people at that time to climb up on the rooftops and shout encouragement on hearing the victory in a battle. This is the way news would travel at the time. Entire families would go up on the rooftops to hear what was the news that had come in. We used to have this funny practice where I worked. I was in one of these cube farms you know, modern office decor, and someone would have some sort of a problem, and they'd be griping about it or frustrated or talking about this, and someone would have an idea about how to solve that. And so they would jump up on their desk and start yelling across the office at the person who was working on the problem, and they would stand on their desk, and pretty soon all of us are all standing on the desk, having a conversation about how to solve this problem. This used to happen with great regularity in my office. There, there was seldom a day where all of us were not standing on our desks talking about something. It's just the way we, we did things. In Jerusalem, it was the same thing, except they were standing on rooftops to communicate with each other. And Isaiah says that here you are celebrating what is going on and you do not understand. Verse 3. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. The leaders of Jerusalem abandoned the city and flee, leaving the people to their fates at the hands of the invader. Even those who tried to escape were caught. 2 Kings 25, 1-12. through 12. 2 Kings 25, 1-12. through 12. I'm going to read the entire passage. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem, and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of Ereba. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzardan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. A very great, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzadaran, the captain of the guard carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. The prophet Isaiah sees all of this in a vision and writes it down. Verses 4 and 5. Therefore I said, look away from me, let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. The prophet Isaiah cannot be consoled. He is heartbroken over what will happen to his people to his country, and to the people who worship God. Bill spoke of this this past week in Isaiah 21, 3 and 4. Therefore my loins are filled with anguish, pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down, down so I cannot hear. I am dismayed so I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. Tumult and trampling is an apt description for what is happening. Ezekiel 7, 5 through 9. Ezekiel 7, 5 through 9. Thus says the Lord God disaster after disaster, behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It is awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near, a day of tumult and not joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Amos 3, 9-15. Amos 3, 9-15. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, and see the great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, An adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued, with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish. And the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. It was not just Isaiah that was confronted with this terrible, tragic event that would happen to Jerusalem. Back to Isaiah, verses six and seven. And Elam bore the quiver and the chariots and the horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. Elam and Kir are kingdoms to the east of Babylon. These conquered lands by Babylon had been pressed into duty as divisions in the army of Babylon. And now their, sta- their soldiers stand inside the city of Jerusalem. Elam was a kingdom in what is now western Iran. The kingdom of Ker, however, is a lost culture whose location is not currently known. But we have this here in our text. Verses 8 through 11. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches in the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem. You broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it, or see who him who planned it long ago. So section one has ended, and section two begins here. God has taken away his protection of Judah. The house of the fourth was possibly a storeroom near to the temple. But having neglected to tend to the openings in the city wall, weakness was left in the defenses. The lower pool is the pool of Siloam, and the upper pool is the pool of Gihon. Walls were built around the pool so that they could be accessed from inside the city walls. But it appears that none of this was done being dedicated to God. God's blessing was left out of the equation. And it turns out that these points were weaknesses in the wall. Verses 12 and 13. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. God is calling for a contriteness of heart. God is calling for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sack sackcloth. Instead, there is joy and gladness in eating meat and drinking wine, a fatalistic attitude, and one focused on the self. This is not what God's people are called to. Verse 14, the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Here in verse 14, we see that God's judgment is absolute. Back to Amos again. Amos 7, 1 through 9. Amos 7, 1 through 9. Warning visions. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowing. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. (coughs) And this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, and with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. This is where section 2 ends. Something you need to know about this. When Jerusalem falls at this point is the last time that Israel is a nation in control of itself until 1948 when the modern state of Israel is founded. This is happening some 700 and a few years before Christ when Israel as a nation falls. Now, the Jewish people get to return to their land, but they are doing so as a conquered peoples at that time. And they came from Babylon and returned to their land again, to rebuild the temple again. But they were not masters of their own destiny. And during the ensuing battles after that, eventually the Romans arrived and this is what we read of in the New Testament, that they are under the control of Rome. And so it is for this area of Canaan, of Judah, up until the time of Israel in the modern day. Verses 15 and 16. So now we're getting into the third section. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, come. Go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, "What have you to do here, and whom have you had, and whom have you here, that you cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock?" So here sec- at the beginning of section three is the lesson of Shebna, the steward. Shebna uses his high position to curry favors for himself. A monument to your family name is a symbol of great wealth and power. It's sort of a a signaling thing, a little bit like celebrities do today. And so what Shebna has done to show how powerful he is, he carves out a huge tomb for his family. By doing this, everyone is impressed that he can have such a monument to himself. Shebna is concerned about his position in society. All of you will recall that when Jesus is buried, he's buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And they make a point of the fact that it is in a garden separate from everything else. The implication there is Joseph of Arimathea is an incredibly wealthy person to have this. Here we have a steward, a civil servant, who is being paid so much that he can have exactly the same sort of monument built to his family. Imagine for a moment that you get your name recorded in the Bible recorded for millennia. And this is the example that is left behind. We're reading of Shebna, the unfaithful servant, 2,700 years after he did this thing. Verses 20 and 21. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, And I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So at the other end of the scale here, we have Eliakim. And God says, my servant of this guy. That's a big deal. Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, is a faithful servant. Eliakim is a leader, one who takes care of the people of Jerusalem. And Eliakim is remembered, even in this little tiny passage, as a great man. Eliakim does not think so highly of himself. And I would think that Eliakim is truly a good and a faithful servant who thinks of God's will and what what God would propose. And then that is what Eliakim does. This is the example of Eliakim. Verses 22 to 24. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel, from the cups to all the flagons. Even in the time of disaster, Eliakim's name is remembered. He shoulders the responsibility of the house of David. Eliakim speaks the words and pathways are opened. And Eliakim speaks the words and pathways are closed. Eliakim is the steady rock for the people of Israel. He is the honored influence and in all the small ways as well. Eliakim is remembered well, even in time of disaster. Verse 25, we go back to Shebna. In that day, it declares, the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. The pronouncement against Shebna and his heritage stands. In that day, and we know what God purposes on that day, and Shebna so desires to be that leader, yet he is cut down and he falls. And all the load that he was carrying falls with him also. And it is all cut off. And that is the end of the third passage. The end of our passage today. Isaiah is distraught and heartbroken over the end that is coming. Isaiah is inconsolable. But all of us know what is behind this. Behind all this is the promise that God will be there in the end. God is the only one who can save. And we can see how incredibly immense the gulf is between where we are And God's judgment and what we deserve and where God is and how far we fall short on that. And the only way to get there, the only bridge between where we are stuck in the mud, in the mire, and where God is, is Jesus. Jesus is their calling to us. Jesus had to pay for that when Jesus walks up on the hill, Calvary, he's the one that pays for that. Isaiah knew this, but it still broke his heart to see what was going to happen to the beautiful city. And dutifully, he wrote it all down for us to see. As difficult as it was for him. Jesus is the one who pays for our sin and our unfaithfulness. Jesus is the one who takes away our guilt. And our sin is atoned for by Jesus' death on the cross. Isaiah is pointing us back to the judgment of God and then saying there is a way out for God's people and he's pointing us back to Jesus. Isaiah is here saying, don't look at the Babylonians. Do not depend on man's salvation. God is the only one who can rescue us from our sin and our unfaithfulness. And Jesus is the one who takes our guilt away. And Jesus is the one who paid for it with his death. God loves us all. And I look at the chaos in the world today, how this message sounds so much like the world we live in now. I don't know how many of you saw this, but yesterday morning, about 9 o'clock Eastern time, so it was about 6 a.m. for us, the United States passed 50% of the people had at least one vaccine injection. The United States passed halfway yesterday morning about nine, uh, 9 o'clock Eastern Time. At the same time, there's a country out there, a little tiny island nation you've probably never heard of, but they were able to inoculate 93% of their population in three days. Some people. We live in a very chaotic world. And it reminds me of how I fail every day. God knows I'm not where I need to be yet. He's still working on me. And every day I'm on my knees before God, praying to Jesus. And then I turn around and I forget again. And I rely on the world and I rely on myself. I need God's power of forgiveness. And The good news is God still chooses us. He covers us with his hand. God's greatness will be there for all to see on the day of the Lord. And we will all be witness to his greatness and his splendor on that day. Let's pray. Almighty God, how incredibly great you are and how incredibly small we are. Lord, you have kept your promise to us. In these words spoken by Isaiah, you have hidden these words all these years and handed them down for us to have. Down through these ages, just so that we could have them here today. Heavenly Father, we have been unfaithful. We keep trying to save ourselves. We look to the Babylonians. We look to Egypt. We look to the world. You want us to hear you in Isaiah's words. You continue to hold us in the palm of your hand. and You lovingly guide us and care for us. Heavenly Father, open our eyes. Hide your word in our hearts. Hide these words of Isaiah in our hearts. Write your words down deep inside of us. Give us the lessons we must learn only from you, Lord. Guide us in your perfect path. Your plan of redemption is so perfect, and we are so lost, Lord. But we love you. You are so amazing, Jesus. We bless you and honor you. And we praise the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.